You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Getting close to the end. Matthew chapter 26. And I just want to read the first 16 verses for us before we even say anything else. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of uh, money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this, this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the tw- twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Everything up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, you might say, has been an introduction. (laughs) Hard to understand. That's 25 chapters of information that we've covered. Um, But we're about ready to enter the very reason why Matthew wrote what he wrote up to this point. Think of everything else as a prologue, everything else as introduction to these next several chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Everything in the sacred story of Christ's redemptive plan centers on the cross. It centers on the cross of Christ. Apart from which there was no other revelation or work of God, there would be no value to sinful men if the cross wasn't included in that revelation. See, it's through the cross of Christ alone that the Lord has provided the way for sinners to be saved, for sinners to be united with him, for sinners to be forgiven of their sin and united to their rightful, not rightful, but their their original relationship with God in the garden that Adam and Eve had before the fall. 
See, there is no salvation, no gospel, no biblical Christianity apart from the cross of Christ. And it's a shame today that a lot of churches take the cross of Christ out of the church. They don't want a cross affiliated with their church. Even our own president on occasion has removed a cross from behind him when he's doing a news conference somewhere and there's a cross they covered up because they're afraid of the implications of what it might imply. See, it's because the unequivocal belief that the central theme of Christianity is the cross. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him what? Him crucified. The cross is the essence of redemptive Christianity. And we can see that. As we look through the Old Testament, we see the cross preludes to the cross, foreshadows of the cross. You see it in the sacrifice of Abel. You see it in the ark as Noah and his family were saved. You see it in the little the ram that was provided so that Abraham was able to spare his son as a substitute for Isaac. You see it in all the Levitical sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. All the sacrifices that they did are all in anticipation of the cross. Even the serpent lifted up in the wilderness for the healing of the people was an anticipation of the cross. Boaz, as Ruth's kingsman redeemer. Throughout the Old Testament, whether it's Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, other prophets mention the cross. The Old Testament truth and the history, everything point to the cross of Jesus Christ. That one place. Even the John, John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Covenant, testified of Jesus. In John one twenty nine. he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, Lamb as sacrifice, sinuates the cross, who takes away the sin of the world. See, the Christian gospel is the message of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel. And that is the dominant and supreme focus of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is the supreme focus of the remaining chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew deals with the cross in a very straightforward way, you might say. In the last three chapters, he focuses on the central theme of the cross. In chapter 26, he details the preparation for the cross and the arrest of Christ. Christ anticipating the cross, which is what we're going to look at today. Chapter 27, Matthew presents not only the trials of Christ, but the execution and the burial of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 28, he narrates the Lord's resurrection, his victory over death and sin, and his final instructions to his people. It's simple. The point here of Matthew in these closing chapters describes the greatest event that ever happened in the history of the world. You can honestly say that. And this morning, we're going to look at the anticipation of the death of Jesus Christ. The anticipation of Christ's death. And we find it here in the first 16 verses of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26. Let's look at verse 1 together. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. Now, I just want to remind you. It says there, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, what sayings? Well, we're talking about the Olivet Discourse. We're talking about chapters 24 and 25. 
We're talking about this sermon that he was preaching on his second coming. We're talking about this day. Remember, it's Wednesday of Passion Week, right in the middle of Passion Week. In two days, Jesus will be hung on a cross and he will die. This is Wednesday. Remember, on Saturday, Jesus arrived in Bethany. On Sunday, great multitudes came out of Jerusalem to Bethany to visit with him. And he ministered to them and he taught them there. And then on Monday, just two days prior to Wednesday, he got on a colt and he rode into Jerusalem. We know that as Palm Sunday. Well, it actually happened on a Monday. To the praises of the people. And remember, the people were praising him, saying, Hallelujah, blessed be the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and, and Hosanna, Messiah, all these things. They were praising Christ as he rode into Jerusalem that day. He rode to the temple, and he turned around, and he went back to Bethany. On Tuesday of this week, he returned to the temple. And on the way, he cursed a fig tree. Remember that as an illustration. And then he went to the temple and he actually cleansed the temple because they had all these people and they're selling stuff. And we've been over this. The, the, the uh, markets of Annas, the, the high priests, were all set up and they were using it to bilk the people out of money. And Christ went down there Tuesday and basically rid the temple of all these people, turned over tables in righteous anger and kicked them out. And that was an affront to the religious leader because that's how they made their money in Jesus' day. And then he left and he went back to Bethany for the night. And on Wednesday, this Wednesday, the Wednesday we're talking about here, he came back and he began to teach. See, he couldn't enter the temple before really in a teaching mode because it was filled with all this money and pilfering people and ripping people off. So he cleansed it. Then the next day he came back and he began to teach the people and the religious leaders He began to call out curses on them and on their people. It's been a long Wednesday. Do you know that we've been in on Wednesday since October of last fall? In the week. That's how long we've been on Wednesday. That's quite a long Wednesday. I mean, some days seem longer than others. They're all 24 hours, but some days seem longer. I'm sure for the disciples, this day was a long day. You can go all the way back to chapter 21, verse 23. That starts the Wednesday. That's how long ago it was. He came back to teach, and he ran into conflict, and he ended up cursing the religious leaders and their people. And then that evening, remember, on this day, on Wednesday, he took his disciples away from everybody, and went over to the Mount of Olives, and he began to unfold the message of his second coming. That's Matthew 24 and 25. It's still Wednesday here, but it's late. It's late Wednesday night. And it says there that Jesus had finished his sayings about a second coming. But there was still something he needed to get across to his disciples. That he wasn't done with his disciples yet. They were probably weary. They were probably tired just emotionally of all the stuff that went on throughout the day. But Jesus says, no, I'm not done yet. I'm finished talking about my second coming. But I got to get back to some real truth. I got to bring you back down to earth. See, all this time, Matthew 24, 25, he's talking about the kingdom, the coming kingdom, the coming Messiah. That's what he's coming about, talking about. Him and all his prominence and ruling and reigning on earth. 
And the disciples are probably excited at this point. Because remember, they didn't think Jesus was going to leave and come back. They thought it was all going to happen right now. They thought, okay, this is, this is Wednesday, probably next Tuesday. He's going to go into Jerusalem and take over and, and, and dethrone the, the Roman army who rules over our people. And he's going to take it by storm. And then we're going to be ruling with Christ here on earth. That's how they pictured it happening. They didn't know he was going to go away and come back later. They didn't understand that. So they were excited at this point about the kingdom. That's all they were focused on. It's kind of like when you tell a little child, hey, we're going to go to an amusement park. When are we going to go? Well, we're going to go in two weeks. We'll go on Wednesday in two weeks. Okay. What happens the next day? When are we going to go? When are we going to go, right? I mean, up until you actually take them to the amusement park, you're just inundated with requests. Can't we go today? Why do we have to wait? Why? Do we, why? They're, they're impatient. They don't understand. All right? Well, that's how the disciples were acting. And Jesus, in his attempt to bring them back to earth... <laughs> Because in their mind, they're already in the kingdom. In his attempt to bring them back to earth, he said, I need to talk to you about something else. And he brings them back to the reality of his, the anticipation of his death. So when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I don't know how you would have reacted in that situation, but I'm sure his disciples were not pleased with that message. After all the talk of the kingdom and everything, now you're saying you're going to let them win? That's probably what's going through their mind. One day Jesus is hailed as Messiah. People are putting palm branches down and, and just, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, all this stuff. The next day he, he returns and he he. he cleanses out the temple, and then he returns another day, and he teaches in the temple, and this day has gone on forever. And now he returns to what you might call the elephant in the room. The idea that he must die in two days at the hands of these same religious leaders that he just rebuked in the temple. For 25 chapters, ever since the introduction of Jesus as a descendant of David in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Matthew, the story of Christ's life has been moving toward a powerful, gripping climax, the murder of Christ, followed by his resurrection. You remember, the story kind of started slowly, but it's been building in intensity throughout the three-year ministry of Christ. And now it's reached a point, and this final act of the drama, you might think, is at hand And that's what we're going to be looking at. The king has come to Jerusalem for the final time. And the leaders of the people who hate him with a passion, they're plotting his arrest and his execution. I mean, this isn't the first time they heard of this, by the way. Jesus has been preparing his disciples, trying to remind them that, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. He's done it on several occasions. He did it in Matthew chapter 16, was the first time, verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day he is raised to life. That's the first time he said it. The second time is found in Matthew 17, 22. It says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the third time was in Matthew 20, verse 18 
We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Notice, each time he includes, he will be raised to life. He will be raised to life. He will be raised to life. Well, now it's the fourth time he brings this up to them. And they kind of grow in their intensity as you look at it. The first one just speaks merely of the death and resurrection of Christ. The second one speaks of his betrayal. The third, it gets more involved. It talks about the Gentiles mocking him and flogging him. And specifically about his crucifixion. Do you understand in all human history, no events have ever been of greater significance or more specifically prophesied than this event? This drama that's unfolding before our eyes in Matthew is the turning point of history. It's the very center of Christianity. According to Matthew's arrangement of his material, three events lead up to this arrest and crucifixion. First of all, in verses 3 and 5, we see the plot of the Sanhedrin to arrest and kill Jesus. Then we see the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, and we're going to be looking at that today in verses 16, or 6 to 13. And then also in verses 14 to 16, the offer of Judas to betray Jesus in the priest, to the priests. Basically, verses, 16, verses 6 to 16 are almost like a flashback. This isn't sequential. But he, Matthew lines out here for us four basic elements of the anticipation of Christ's death. Four basic elements, and I want to cover those with you this morning. The first one is the plan of sovereign grace. The plan of sovereign grace. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The plan of sovereign grace. See, you remember, in his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily, voluntarily limited the use of his omniscience, his glory, and certain other attributes in his deity. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that. Set him aside for a period of time. In his humility and self-imposed limitations as a man, Jesus taught only the divine truth that his father revealed to him. Jesus didn't, wasn't down here doing his own thing. He was in direct submission to the father's will during that time. That's why in John 12, 49 and Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, the father himself sent me, has given me commandments, what to say, what to speak, you might say. Now Jesus knew it was the Father's time for him to die. And he not only declared it again to his disciples that he must suffer and be crucified, but he specified that his death was only two days away. Now, if you've been following somebody for three years, and you've seen the things that you've seen with Jesus, all the miracles and incredible following that he's had, and now he's sitting you down after he tells you about this glorious kingdom that's going to happen, and he says, by the way, guys, two days I'm going to be dead. But third day I'm going to raise, but you know, I don't think they probably heard the third day any of these times. I don't think they understood the resurrection at all. They didn't get it. Because after he died, where'd they go? They all scattered. They just went back to whatever they were doing, thinking, up, game over. Let's go home. But two days, it says, was the beginning of Passover. 
Now, stop and think about this. This is the divinely appointed time for Christ, the Son of Man, to be delivered up for crucifixion. Some people write, skeptics, they explain the death and the rest and, of Christ and everything. They kind of say, well, you know, it, 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 it kind of worked out that way because he was, it was a well-meaning revolution, but it just didn't work out. Or other people say, oh, he was just a madman. He didn't know what was happening, and finally they caught up with him and, and they killed him. And they just basically say, well, he was a good guy, but he just got a little out of hand, and the religious leaders had to take care of him. And he fell by that fate. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus had predicted at least three times previous to this one that he would suffer to the death, but that he would rise again. He had even indicated that his death would be in Jerusalem and that he would rise on the third day. See, you have to understand, Jesus was on a divine timetable here. God was in control of this. It was the plan of his sovereign grace that all these things would happen just as he laid out. And no human plans or power could cause the timetable to vary at all. Now, you can look at that and say, boy, God's a control freak. Or you can look at that and say, wow, God must really know what he's doing. He said in John 10, 18, no one has ever, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is Christ speaking. Even when Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? What was his answer to Pilate? He said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you by my Father, the one above. He said that in John 19. Stop and think with me. Through the ministry of Christ, as we've even walked through the Gospel of Matthew in his ministry, time after time after time, you see the religious leaders seeking to kill him, don't you? And that's nothing new. Stop and think about it. From the very beginning, from his birth, right? Remember Herod killed all the babies? Why? He's trying to kill the Christ. This happened over and over and over and over again. The Jewish religious leaders began plotting his death soon after his public ministry even began in John chapter 5. But they weren't able to fulfill their wishes because that wasn't part of God's plan. The first attempt on Jesus' life was made shortly after he was born, when Herod massacred all the infants in the vicinity of Bethlehem. But God sent an angel to warn Joseph to take Jesus and his mother to Egypt out of danger. On one occasion, when he was ministering in the synagogue in his home town of Nazareth, remember this, the people became so incensed about his claim to be fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy and by his reminding them of several instances when God chose to bless certain Gentiles rather than Jews, they succeeded in leading him to the edge of a high cliff on the outskirts of the city. We were actually there when we were over there in Jerusalem. I actually got to teach the group there on that very spot. But before they could throw him over the cliff to his death, the Bible says he miraculously passed through their midst and he went his way. This was no ordinary man, beloved. This was a man 
who was on a divine timetable. He was a man who was purely God. Fully man, yet fully God. After Jesus healed the crippled man, remember, at the pool of Bethesda, the Jewish leaders began seeking all the more to kill him, it says, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were very upset. To some people, Jesus became known as the man whom they are seeking to kill. That's in John 7.25. But when the temple police were sent to arrest him for healing a man on the Sabbath, what happened? They returned empty-handed. Why? Because it wasn't the Father's time. When the chief priests and Pharisees asked the officers why they didn't bring Jesus back, here's what their answer was. Think of this in John 7, 20, 7.44. He says, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. In other words, they were just blown away by his teaching. We can't arrest this guy. After all these attempts to kill Jesus... They all failed. And they all failed because it wasn't God's time. And it wasn't God's way for the Son of Man to die. Only the sovereign grace of God could have brought Jesus to the cross. Do you understand that? No human power could ever have accomplished it apart from God's will. And no human power could now prevent it. Because it's God's plan. It was God's plan from the beginning. This is not the time for the religious leaders, not now, from their perspective. That's why it says down, down in verse, uh, verse, the end of verse 4, or verse 5, it says, But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Do you understand that Jerusalem at this point was just maxed out with people? Close to 3 million people. Josephus tells us that Records show that there was 250,000 lambs slain during that week alone. And for every lamb, there had to be at least 10 people. You do the math, you come up to about 2.5 million, almost 3 million people. They wanted to take Jesus out, but they couldn't do it now because all of his buddies were here. All the people that saw him heal and everything, they all came to Jerusalem. And he's here in Bethany coming and teaching. He just basically berated him in front of everybody in the temple. And they're thinking, we've got to take this guy out, but we can't do it right now because we have a riot on our hands. This was not the time of their choosing, but it was the time of the Father's choosing. When they wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't. But when they didn't want to do it, they ended up doing it anyway. <laughs> kind of tells you a little bit about the free will of men. As Jesus declared at the Last Supper, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. He said that in Luke twenty two twenty two. In Acts chapter two twenty three, Peter declared at Pentecost, Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. See, this wasn't some religious experiment that went bad. This is not what happened here. This was all planned out. Two days from Wednesday is Friday, the Passover. How appropriate is it for the, the Lamb of God to be slain on the Passover? The appropriate time for Jesus to die was the Passover. Remember John's words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
The sacrifices of all the other lambs were but faint symbols of what the true lamb was soon to accomplish in his sacrifice in reality. Even in Acts chapter 8, as Philip explained to the Ethiopian, Jesus was the lamb predicted by Isaiah, led to slaughter. And he didn't even open his mouth. Paul declared to the Corinthian believers, Jesus was Christ our Passover. We're going to be talking a little bit about this next week. Who also has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this. Jesus was the unblemished lamb, listen, foreknown before the foundation of the world. But who has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. See, sometimes we get it wrong. We think that somehow God created Adam and Eve in this perfect place and he threw them down there on the earth and they're just, you know, living high on the hog, having a good old time. And then they mess up, they sin, and God's up in heaven and he goes, oh no, what do we do now? This wasn't in the plan. Paper, rock, scissors. Come on, Trinity, who's gone down and fixed this problem? Jesus, you lost. You got to go down. Sorry, Bal. That's not how it worked. The Bible says that even before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the predetermined sacrifice of God. As John saw on the island of Patmos in Revelation 5.22, Jesus was the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus was going to the cross. Jesus will raise from the dead on the third day. His, God's will will turn the will of man to accomplish his holy purpose. And Jesus is now ready because it is the Father's sovereign plan. We see the sovereign grace of God played out here. In John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this, The hour has come that the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus knew he had to die. This didn't come as a surprise. He anticipated it because it was the plan of a sovereign God and his grace. Well, look at verses 3 and 5, because here we see the purpose of hateful rejection. When you have God's plan, you also have to have a purpose. God doesn't just do things without a purpose. You might be going through something in your own life right now, and you say, well, gee, why is this happening to me? Don't do that. Stop and say, you know what? I don't know why this is happening to me, but God knows it's happening to me, and God must have a purpose for it happening to me at this time right now. He's trying to teach me something. He's trying to grow me in my faith. He's trying to do something to me. There's always a purpose behind God's plan. It says here, Then the chief priests and the elders and the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. See, as Jesus was speaking to his disciples on that Wednesday night, late there on the Mount of Olives, the Sanhedrin primarily composed of those chief priests and the folks mentioned there. The chief priests were, were basically representing the wealthy, influential, religious leaders. That's who the chief priests basically were. The elders represented the wealthy and influential lay people. 
And the scribes were basically those who were experts in the law. doesn't mention them here, but they were probably there. And according to this Jewish historian Josephus, the full name of the high priest was Joseph Caiaphas. And he was a conniving, treacherous, deceitful man beyond all imaginations. The only thing that we have of of Caiaphas in the scriptures, it always portrays him as trying to kill Jesus. That's it. It's just like a one-dimensional guy. I'm out to kill Jesus. That's all I want to do. Like Herod, his hatred and his fear of Jesus was not theological. He didn't care what he believed, but it was political. He was threatened and driven purely by greed and selfishness, jealous ambition. He had no sense of justice when it came to Jesus. He would do anything to have this guy taken care of. He really was not even a good leader among his own people. He had no regard for his own people or his religion. He just set out to use people for his advantage. If it was expedient, then he would do it. In John 11, 50, it says this, his basic operating principle, it is expedient for you that one should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. He just didn't care about anybody else or anything else, what was expedient for him. Now, you have to understand a little bit about how he got to this position. To be a high priest, traditionally, it has to be passed through a uh, heritage. You have to have some Levitical heritage in in your background. You can't just, anybody just can't be a high priest. They wouldn't tolerate that. Well, Caiaphas didn't have that, but here's what he did. He married the daughter of the high priest Annas. Remember the the high priest Annas who had all the bazaars and all that stuff going on that Jesus just ousted from the temple? That was Caiaphas' predecessor. And he married his daughter probably when she was about 12. Just so he could have some link, so that he could have some in to become the high priest. And this guy served as high priest from about 15 A.D. to 37 A.D. And if you know anything about the high priests, even during the time of of Christ, there was 28 different... um, Let me get this right. To, To hold the office that long required a close relationship with Rome. And over a period of some hundred years, there was over 28 different men who served as high priest. And Caiaphas was the longest out of all those. So he was doing something right politically. I mean, to give you an idea, they, they turned over constantly. His predecessor only, lived 50, or only lasted 50 days. So he was the epitome of this religious system that now dominated Israel. And he was wicked, and he was set out on killing the Christ. And he, as a priest, he was the one that supervised, even though he was evil, he supervised the priestly functions of the temple, all those things. And so he gathered the Sanhedrin together, and they wanted to plot, it says, 
by stealth, secretly, how they could seize Jesus. They didn't want to antagonize all the people that were there because they'd have a riot on their hand. They, they had to figure out how they could do this without a riot. And they had, were up, up to here with Jesus' teaching, his, his constant rebuke of them and everything. And he was done with them as well, you might say. And it says there that they basically schemed together, plotted together, in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But verse 5 says, not during the feast, not during the Passover. That's not when they wanted to do it. That's the least of their favorite options. They didn't want to do it during that because there were so many people there, and undoubtedly there would be a riot if they just went in and took the Messiah away. But that's exactly what they ended up happening because it was God's divine plan. Now, what happens at this point in our text is it's, it's kind of a flashback. I want you to think back to Saturday when he first came, when he came to Bethany. And it says there, that's why it says, now when Jesus was at Bethany, was there. He's not there now in the timeline here. Matthew's kind of taken us back to a time that happened a couple days ago. It says, at the house of Simon the leper. He wasn't a leper anymore. He was cleansed or they wouldn't be there, right? I mean, you don't go to a house of a leper. That was just a no-no, big time. But he was cleansed. Maybe he was most likely cleansed by Jesus Christ himself. It said, a woman came to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And here we're going to talk about the presentation of loving worship. This is kind of an interesting point. I mean, Jesus is here predicting his death, and all of a sudden he puts this little story in here. And you wonder, why does he do that? Why does he have this flashback? Because he wants the disciples to remember that, you know what, you can, you can either embrace this, or you can raise your fist at it. This plot to kill me and, and me to be crucified on the third day I'm going to raise. But you know what? You need to cooperate here because this is the plan of God. And so he gives this illustration of, we find out her, her name to be Mary, okay, in the other Gospels. This account happens in other Gospels. And you've got to put all those stories together to get the full story. But it says, a woman came to him, Mary, with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. Now, back then, they didn't have, uh, how do I say, you know, um, Old Spice wasn't around, okay? They didn't have right guard. They didn't have uh, deodorant. All right, now imagine, this is a long day, long Wednesday. They're out in the heat and the dust and everything and, 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 and all that. And, and this Saturday before, when this account is taking place, they're coming in, they're made a travel to Bethany. They're sitting down at this house to kind of celebrate. Lazarus was there. Uh, Simon was there. Mary, Martha, all these people were there. And so you had a good company of people there, probably 20-some people at this dinner time. Now you take... 20-some people in a house for dinner, and you don't have the ability to make yourself smell good like we do today, okay? That's why they had foot washings. And it was very common for the person who was hosting the dinner to offer some fragrant aroma that you could maybe splash on yourself or something like that. It wasn't expensive stuff, but it smelled good. And it took away basically all the, the, the odor that people had. 
because that's not very appetizing when you're sitting down for a meal. So they couldn't just run out to the shower, and I don't know, I couldn't live back then, but, um, you know, that would just be a major no-no. I couldn't do this, but, you know, that's what they did. And, and so where she got this stuff, who knows? It doesn't really say, um, but it was very costly, this perfume. And it says here that she, she literally poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. The other account says that she anointed his feet. Well, you put the two accounts together, what did she do? She basically just doused Jesus with this perfume, head to toe. That's what she did. And I don't think she did it because he stunk. It's an act of worship. And Jesus kind of explains that. See, I think somehow Mary understood a little more even than the disciples what's going to happen to Christ. Matter of fact, I know she did because Jesus says that she did this because to prepare me for my burial. The disciples are still going, what burial? What are you talking about? (laughs) They're, They're just not putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So they had this big supper, and during the supper, she anoints Christ with this costly, fragrant perfume. And it was, it, was, it was over 300 denarii, a year's wage for a common soldier or laborer back then. And she apparently got so into the worship, she actually broke the flask over, not over, but over his head, and let the oil just drip down over his entire head and body and toe, feet and everything. She did this as an act of worship. She wasn't doing this trying to show off. You know, that's, that's how sometimes, you know, you, you see certain people in worship and you think, okay, what are they doing? You know, they're drawing all the attention to themselves. That's not what she's doing here. That's not what she's doing at all. She's literally worshiping Christ because she probably realized that he's going to go die for me. I think in her heart she really understood what this was all about. She didn't offer this perfume to support his ministry. Here, Jesus, here, here this will get you through the next couple days. You and your disciples. She didn't do that. She offered it to Christ himself. See, so many times I think in the church today, when it comes to offering things to God, whether it's our time, talent, or treasure, when do we do it? We do it when there's what? When there's a need. Oh, the church needs a new air conditioner. Oh, we've got we to gotta come up with some money to put the new air conditioner. Oh, the church needs Sunday school. Work. Oh, well, we'll respond to that. Oh, you know, we need this, we need that. Oh, it's all need-based. That's not what she was doing here. She wasn't looking at Jesus and saying, man, pal, you really need a, this alabaster perfume more than I do. I'm just going to dump it over your head. No, it was out of a heart of worship. It was, an, it was out of a, a heart of just, you know, profound just obedience to her heart's calling here. Didn't make sense. Sometimes that's the kind of worship God wants from us, the kind of worship that doesn't make sense. She didn't selfishly seek a visible or tangible result. She didn't think, okay, I'm going to put this stuff on Jesus and then maybe he'll do something for me. That wasn't in her mind. And yet, so many times, I think when we put our little offerings in the bag or whatever, somehow we think, okay, sow, reap. Okay, I'm going to get something back as a result of this. See, that's tainted by our own humanness, our own sinfulness. 
I mean, how freeing would it be to just to give to Christ to give to Christ? And I'm not just talking money. I'm talking talent, treasure, whatever. Because you love him. Because you understand what he did for you on the cross. Mary understood what he was going to do for her on the cross at this point. And her heart just welled up with emotion and she just took this flask and just doused him with this costly perfume. She didn't hesitate. Look at the disciples' response to Mary's presentation of loving worship. And when the disciples saw it, John tells us that Judas Iscariot got this discussion going, which doesn't surprise us. He was the treasurer of the whole bunch. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They didn't appreciate it. They were upset. They couldn't comprehend somebody doing this. It says they were indignant, saying, why, the, why this waste? See, in their minds, what Mary just did to, to our Lord and Savior was a waste. Total waste. And they say, why? We, we could have sold this for a large sum of money and given it to the poor. Once again, what are they back to? They're back to need-based. <laughs> if you need something, well then, you know, I'll give it. But I'm not just going to give you something just to give it to you. When we come before God and we worship him in spirit and truth, do we actually think that he needs our money? <laughs> he needs our time and he needs our talents? Somehow the kingdom of God won't go on without us? I hope not, because that's not the case. See, he doesn't need anything. He's God, self-sufficient. Just because he is, he is. They didn't get that. And so when Mary poured this perfume on him, to them it was a, it was a waste. I think sometimes we, we look at people and their, the way they worship the Lord Sometimes we maybe conclude the same thing. What a waste. It says, For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. I like Jesus here, his answer. It says, But Jesus, aware of this, they weren't telling him anything. Jesus wasn't saying, Oh, I didn't know it cost that much. I'm sorry. Mary, you shouldn't have done that. No, he knew exactly what she was doing because he was God. He was already aware of what was going on in their minds. Aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? Leave her alone. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Remember back in the parable of the sheets and the goats? The Lord has just graphically taught that meeting the physical needs of his people is the utmost importance. Remember that? You do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. And it's what? It's the mark of genuine salvation. What's he doing? He's, he's painting a picture here for his own disciples. 
saying, you guys are missing it. Before he would return to his father, though, he would have to suffer and die and be raised up. This wasn't a time for philanthropy, but for adoration, for worship. Not a time for charity, but for worship. Just as she'd done on an earlier occasion, Mary now had chosen the good part. She was performing the good deed for her Lord. I want you to understand this morning, genuine worship is the supreme service a Christian can offer Christ. Is your genuine worship. Don't just come in here on Sunday mornings and sing some songs and sit here and think you're doing a favor to God. That's not worship. That's just coming in here and singing some songs and thinking you're doing a favor to God. That's all that is. Genuine worship is the supreme service of a Christian to Christ. Jesus isn't saying there's not a time to minister to the poor, the sick, the naked, and the imprisoned. He's not saying that. Matter of fact, he just got done telling them you need to do that. There's a time for witnessing to the lost and seeking to lead them to a Savior. There's a time for discipling new believers and helping them grow in the faith. There's a time for the careful study and the teaching of God's Word. But above all else, the Lord requires of His people is true worship. True worship. Without which everything else they may do in his name is empty and powerless. The worshiper emulated by Mary does not ask, how much is it going to cost? Do I have the time to do this? See, the true worshiper gives Jesus whatever they have knowing that it's trivial in comparison to what they've received from him. And she did it there, it says, to prepare him for burial. He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Another indication that he won't be around very long. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In all the gospels, it's there. In the ones that has this account. The Holy Spirit made sure that it was included. This brings us to our last point for this morning. The perpetration of the betraying hypocrisy. The perpetration of the betraying hypocrisy. Remember, this is a flashback to Saturday before this little section here. So I want you to see the contrast here between Mary, who was worshiping Christ unhindered, pure heart, giving whatever she had to the utmost to Christ. And then we come to verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priests. Remember, this is not Wednesday. This is a Saturday before Wednesday. Went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of uh, silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to portray, to betray him. Remember, this starts off in verse 1, when he had finished all these sayings, we're in Wednesday of Passion Week. Two days, Christ will be dead. And then, in the context here, it does a flashback to the Saturday before. So now we find ourselves the Saturday before even Christ wrote in on Palm Sunday or Palm Monday and all that stuff happened. He cleansed the temple. This is the Saturday right before that. That's when this meal took place. And Judas went out. He says, he went to the chief priest and says, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? Because word was known that they wanted him. In contrast to Mary, who gave an open testimony of loving worship, Judas Iscariot gave this clandestine testimony of betraying hypocrisy. All along, he's with Jesus. He's with the disciples. Monday, as they rode in, there's Judas right there with them. Hearing them praise Christ. So he goes in Tuesday and cleanses out the temple. There's Judas right there with them. And all along, he's calculating, when can I do this? When they're going to give me 30 pieces of silver? I've got to do this. This is what's in his mind. What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? I think sometimes today in our, in our modern Christianity, we have this idea that Christ is kind of like He's this God that's there to meet our felt needs. And it's sad because it even comes down to the gospel presentation sometimes. When we present the gospel to people, what do we do? Oh, we, oh Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't you want all your sins forgiven? Don't you want to live gloriously in heaven forever? Don't you want this? Don't you want that? Don't you? It's never, you know what? He... He is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of you coming to him and calling him Savior. It's always this felt needs. Jesus will meet your felt needs. Jesus will make your family happy. Jesus will make your wallet thicker. Jesus will make your job go smoother. Jesus will do this. Jesus will do that. And we have all these people coming to Christ for what Jesus will do for them. see any different here. <laughs> Judas Iscariot's basically, hey, what can I get out of this ticket with Jesus? I sure I'll, I'll hang around Jesus as long as I get something out of it. What are you going to give me? What's in it for me? That's not the Christianity of the Bible, beloved. It's just not. I mean, you read the New Testament, you read in the book of Acts where the, the, the church, it says they had all things in common. It's not talking about communism. It's talking about caring for each other's needs. When you see someone in want in the body of Christ, you help them, you you assist them if you have the ability to do so. 
We don't have to wait for an offering to be taken up. We don't have to wait for it to be announced. We don't have to wait for that. If you see something, it's your duty as a brother or sister in Christ to reach out to that person, pray for them, encourage them, buy them a meal, whatever it takes, if you have the ability to do so. See, Judas was focused on himself. Frankly, so were the other disciples. He was amazed. The chief priests were probably amazed at this point that one of Jesus' own disciples would be the means of destroying him. So they weighed out the 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. Jesus not, Judas not only sold out his teacher and his leader, but his friend. But he also betrayed the very Son of God. And that's why the Bible says that when he was doing this, Satan entered him. That's what it took to do something so hideous like this. And then to do it, as we find out, with a kiss. And it says that he began looking for an opportunity to betray the Lord. You know, I pray this morning that you're not in this thing we call Christianity for what you can get out of it. I pray that you're in it because you understand that God created you and that he desires a relationship with you and that he's sent Christ to the cross as a predetermined plan to pay for your sins because there's no way you could pay for your own. Couldn't even come close. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Put your faith, your trust in me. Let me carry the burden of your sin. Let me take it upon myself. I'm going to a cross and I'm going to pay the price for you. I mean, think of what a fool you'd be if somebody came up to you and said, hey, you got a home mortgage? Yeah, I got one. Think about this, Bob. Somebody walked up to you after the service and said, you know what, Bob? I want to do you a favor. Here's a check. Write it out for the balance of your house. Bob would be a fool to say, oh, 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 I couldn't do that. I, I am sorry, I can't, I can't do that. I'm, I'm going to work it off. I'm, you know, I'm a 30-year mortgage. I'm going I'm to do it my way. He'd be a fool. If somebody with the means came to Mr. Murata and said, here, pay your house off, you'd be a fool to turn down. Nobody in this room who has a mortgage would turn that offer down. And yet, so many times people come to Christ and Christ is saying, you know what? I want to pay it off. I want to clear your debt. I want to take care of your sin. I don't want it to be your problem anymore. Just put your faith, your trust in me. In me alone. Stop trying to work it out yourself. Judas forever turned his back on the Lord and on his own salvation, I might add. And the Lord forever turned his back on Judas. Don't let that happen to you. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for this message. We thank you, Lord, that Christ is anticipating his own death, a very hard time 
is just around the corner, just two days away. 48 hours, he will be hanging on a cross and he will give up his physical life. His disciples' lives will be rocked. They'll be depressed. They'll be thrown asunder. They'll just, they, they won't understand this at all. And yet it's so interesting that we find a woman here in our text that totally understood it. That she got it. She understood it wasn't about a big song and dance, a big flash in the pan kind of thing. It was about a pure act of worship, irrespective of its value. It didn't matter. She was just so thankful that Christ was willing to take on the task of dying for her sin. She was willing to worship him in spirit and truth. I pray today that our hearts would be drawn to the Savior. I pray that we wouldn't try to make excuses for our own sin, our own selfishness. Father, by the world's standards, we may be considered good men and women. But Lord, by your standards, we're all sinners and we all deserve the penalty of hell. And it's only by your grace and your love that you sent your son to die on a, on a place called the cross, Calvary. And we're so thankful that he just didn't die there. After they buried him on the third day, the Bible says that he rose victorious over sin and death. That should make us want to run to him even more. Because everything he said came true. Every prophecy he told about himself happened. Every prophecy that was told about him happened. There's no wiggle room here. Either you believe in who Christ is or you don't. It's kind of that simple. But Lord, I pray as we leave this place that we'd be reminded as we share the gospel as Christians with other people, help us not to make it just about what they can get out of their salvation. But let's make it about the glory of God, that he's our creator. He's the one that created us. He deserves our worship. Even if he doesn't do anything for us, he still deserves our worship. But he's done so much through his son. I pray that people's hearts would be drawn to the Savior. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.